We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What a Question on everybody's mind, how will Arsenal possibly play football the rest of the season after constantly shooting ourselves in the foot? This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, the Black Man Twitter, Yankee Gunner. It is, um, so look, I I hate when I have to go full expert, like full-blown expert. We had Dr. Raj on the show the other day, and I know that he is a doctor, uh, and I don't want to show up his medical knowledge, but I'm going to go there. So my studies have concluded that to play football, you need to have uh, feet. Or not need to, but it is certainly helpful. And that uh, bullet holes in feet can make it difficult to both wear football boots and to play football. Uh, So with this knowledge, what I have synthesized is a hypothesis that if we keep firing shots into our own feet, uh, we will no longer be able to effectively play Premier League football. So I recommend we stop doing that. Long tortured analogy aside, hello and welcome. So glad to have you here. We are going to do things a little different today. We'll have a part one where we talk about the game and a part two where we answer your questions that we solicited on Twitter and Discord and not Facebook because I am bad and forgot Facebook. So I'm sorry, Facebook people and Instagram people. Uh, You know what? There are a lot of social media platforms and we should probably get better at some of them. Uh, Here to help me get better at lots of things is Paul. You can find him on Twitter. Pause my pants. Hello, pause. And Clive, you can find him on Twitter. Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello, indeed. All right. Well, I, for one, am excited to talk about Arsenal 1, Burnley 1. This is another game that I think is going to really test our mettle in terms of our ability to really analyze process and result. And I I think we are going to get to a point later in the season where we have to address whether or if ever it is acceptable to stop talking about process 
and simply look at results. The people that are ultimately going to decide Arteta's future are the people that run KSE, namely Stan Kroenke, most, most prominently. And you do wonder, is he watching closely enough or does he understand football even enough to have a sense of how the process is going or will it simply be about results? Um, and on that front, it would be nice for Arteta to, to turn some of the good work that's being done into better results. Uh, a very disappointing day. A bad Burnley side gets a point that is certainly not earned uh, and it's now two goals they've scored this season, both of which were put into our net by our players. Not great. Uh, one point taken off Burnley this season. So, Clive, I'll start with you. I... I think we all understood why Arteta had to rotate for Leicester. I was in favor of it, and it's easy to say you're in favor of it after you win the game, but I was in favor of it. I can somewhat understand why he felt the need to have a little bit of rotation here as well, Um, but there's still a very strong side starting, presumably our best midfield partnership. Uh, You could argue nearly our best forward line, but with the addition of Willian instead of maybe a a preferred player like a Pepe or even a Martinelli. And then Chambers comes in at right back. And and while we could maybe talk about that decision tactically and the idea that he maybe wanted someone a little bigger and more physical to face Burnley's threat at the back, you know, I think he's one of the better performers on the day. So it kind of looks a good point. I guess my question for you is, do you regard anything about how this game went as being due to a challenge of selection or the way the team was picked? Um, or was it simply a failure to execute in the final third, which has really been the story of our season, in my view? Well, yeah, and so, and last night I, I did something. I posted out the league table and I sort of said, you know, <laughs> don't look at it, basically, because it's going to frustrate you when you see where teams are ahead of us and where we should be based on the mistakes we've made in, in key games. We, we can all remember Leicester, Wolves, Villa, Burnley, <laughs> we can we can go on and on. Leeds, there's so many games where we've just been, you know, we've really let ourselves down in, in a football way or discipline way. And it got me thinking, really. Uh, it got me thinking almost above and beyond the selections that we've made and got me thinking, okay, there's a trend here now. There's a trend developing. And, the, and what are those trends? And the trends are discipline, individual mistakes, and a lack of ruthlessness in the, in the opposing box. And if we were to fix that, we would have, I'd say, easy 12 points. Not even fully fix it, only partially fix it. And it's it's beyond frustrating what's actually happening. And um, and I just couldn't help but think that, you know, when someone replied to me on that tweet and sort of said, oh, Clive, I suppose you are tethering people are looking at a league table, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, when he said that, are tethering, I went, what is he? What is, what's he trying to tell me here? And what? And how do you really feel about this? And and I really feel at the moment that whatever happens on the field, whether it be a substitution, whether it be a certain player playing, we've got we've got a moment in time coming up about what we do to improve the quality of these players. And I don't think it's all down to coaching and management. And when you start to see multiple individual mistakes, I don't think that's a coaching issue. I think we're getting down to player quality issue and I think we're seeing some good performances from, from many players, but we, we're not sustaining that performance level for long enough, whether that be football quality or concentration quality, but it's quality. And yes, we can have this right back. We've got one of three to choose from. We've got a couple of centre fielders to choose from, but really we lack some quality in some positions, some depth, some real strength, power, speed, 
some dexterity, some two-footedness, some mental um, stability. And this is who we are at the moment. And I think it, it, it doesn't matter who the coach is or it does matter about the club and what the club's going to do to invest in this team. And I think that is the absolute key next step. I'm not sure if that answers your question, Elliot, but I just feel that's what I felt at the weekend. And that frustration that we're all carrying, I just can't help but step back and breathe and think, hold on, it's happening too many times. What is the real crux of the issue? And I think I think we all know that this summer's coming up is huge, but I think he's really telling us these performances, these mid-tail performances are really, really staring at us and we just need to listen to what they're telling us and really think about what the future is. Yeah, and, and I mean, look, I... I think I am torn because there's a part of me that says <clears throat> this is a hard league and anytime you start with anything less than your absolute best players, you make the margins narrower and something silly can happen and you can wind up dropping points you shouldn't because that's just the way the Premier League is. And I look at this and I say, you know, that's not a bad side he picked. Yeah, I'd like Pepe to start over Willian. And you say that's kind of nitpicking. We played really well. Willian is involved in the first goal. Um... But I, I think the problem is scoring goals for us right now because other than Aubameyang, and Tim has talked about this a lot, I just don't know that I trust anyone to go get the second goal, to go get the third goal. And Saka can do it. He's still only 19. He's not going to do it every game. Whatever Willian is bringing now, some extra technical security, maybe some extra structure, some extra play between the thirds, I still don't expect him to give us that end product in the final third. And so I, I think it is a fair question. I mean, you look at Spurs getting four against Palace. They get pegged back to 1-1 in a game that was very one-sided. But when you have Gareth Bale, when you have Harry Kane, when you have Son, you know, you have more people that you trust to to solve the problem. And so I, I think that is an issue for us in general, which is that our dominance hasn't been rewarded with the end product it should. And there's a question of whether that's because we simply don't have the right quality on the pitch to to finish it off. Now, having said that, we did dominate this game. We were very good. Um, and we should have won by a larger margin. We did create the chances to win it, and we did create the penalty to win it. We'll talk about the penalty incident. But, uh, Paul, let's, let's talk about how we create the first goal because I think it is an important topic in light of how we concede the goal. That first goal comes from a situation where we play out from... Look, Burnley pressed, and I have to admit, I did not see that coming. Maybe because I haven't been watching them, because why would you? Or maybe it's because there's something new to them. I don't know. But what I will say is... maybe because you didn't listen to my uh, preview assessment of Burnley before the game. That that is almost certainly true, yes. But, (laughs) well, no, I, I mean, I think... The intensity of their press, given how tired they were, how much they had played, they really pressed aggressively and somewhat effectively. We used that press to our advantage in the first goal. And I think throughout the game, when we were effective, it was because we played around their press. In fact, I would want Burnley to press us because I would favor us to play our way around it. In the buildup to the first goal, there is a pass to Shaka bracketed by two players where he plays the simple tap back to party and party is off and, and away he goes, his best... Uh, move in the game, Williams' best involvement in the game, and Aubameyang with a lovely cut inside and near post finish. The goal we concede comes from a sort of similar scenario, except Chaka doesn't make the easy laid back pass right to Leno. So for the people that pull their hair out at playing out from the back, there is no first goal without it. So where do you fall on how we use playing out from the back to create the first goal and, and the need for that to continue to be a philosophy we adhere to? 
Yeah, look, you've kind of covered it brilliantly. So you've done all the hard work for me. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's how you're but, supposed to ask a question is cover all aspects yeah, yeah. of the topic as thoroughly as possible. <laughs> uh, I'm sitting back uh, f- having my no- my uh, nails filed here. Mm. Um, look, it was essentially a game of chicken, right? Uh, I don't know what that movie is. It's got, uh, I think it's got James Dean in it and uh, uh, Harrison Ford back back in the day. Back Lord in of the, the Rings. 60s. No, <laughs> and they like they drive two cars at each other, and you, it's like who jumps out last kind mm. of thing. And that's what we were playing here. It was a game of chicken. <clears throat> um, you were correct to highlight their pressing, and that was the trade-off. We would play out from the back. They have the best playmaker in the league uh, in terms of they don't actually, but they do have pressing. So I've got a really interesting stat for you. You know the way I like to do this. So using the FB ref. Pressing stat in the their in their final third. In other words, it, it, pressing our defense. The top four pressing teams against us this year in the league are, and, and the bottom of these four is Leeds, then City, then United, then Liverpool, at levels of 59, 51, 59, 63, and 73 pressures. In other words, closing down a guy. Uh, in the attacking third, but they are all trumped by Burnley, who are 81. So Liverpool was the highest pressures until this Burnley game. And um, I mean, that just tells you what what this game was about for much of it. Uh, us continuing to play out from the back and them ra- raising and raising the pressure on us. And that was the game of chicken. Could we break their press, uh, work our way through them? and give it to Aubameyang on the left so that he could do two Ronaldo step-overs, but not in that flashy way Ronaldo does them. (laughs) His goal is really fucking good. Yeah. Really good. What he does with those step-overs, I mean, I I wouldn't have even noticed they were step-overs till a certain angle. None of this Ronaldo fucking high steps, knees up to his chest, fucking shit. Uh, It's absolutely superb how he takes that. But that was the trade-off. Um... And Chaka screwed it up. <clears throat> I think the interesting, th- that's my take. I know people are say, was it Leno or was it Chaka or whatever? But uh, the decisions were all fine, uh, apart from Chaka taking that extra touch. But I'd say this, I've watched it back maybe 10, 15 times just to watch Chaka. And I think if he was given that ball another 10 times, he got it where he asked for. He pointed it, pointed for where he wanted. He got it exactly where he, he didn't. Uh, kind of panic a little bit and take an extra touch. It was always his plan to take that touch, touch and knock it to his left. And that's how he plays that. And that's how he was going to play it. Um, so that's something they need to work on, obviously. But this was this. It's basically the stake a goat out in the clearing of a forest and wait for a tiger to come. But the problem is a tiger will come and he might eat your goat or he might find you and eat you, but that's that's your trade-off here. That's that's you're not going to break down Burnley easily if they sit back with their lumbering uh, trees clogging up the middle of the park, which was much more kind of what happened in the second half. Mm. Uh, they did a really good job of locking up the middle, and we found it really, really, really tough in the second half to get it going without playing out from the back. And the further they sat back the more frustrated we were, and then they were hitting us on the counter. So 
I think we preferred it in the first half when they were coming at us and pressuring us because I think that's when much of the pressing was done. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt watching this game that it was going to be an easy day because early on when they were trying to press us and we were playing around them quite easily, there were a lot of situations where we were running at their back line in space, which I would imagine against Burnley Clive is exactly what you want to happen. There was no bombing and counterattack where he gave it beautifully to Saka and Saka didn't get the shot off quickly, so we tried to cut it back and it was blocked. There was the one where Saka was given the ball on the counter and Odegaard made this beautiful run around the outside of him and Saka's... Um, through ball to him is just a little heavy. So it takes Odegaard all the way to the end line. And he has to like touch it to keep it in and then plays it back to party and party blasts over. But these all came from transitional play, which you wouldn't really expect to have against Burnley, or at least the, the stereotypical Burnley that I think of. So I thought it was playing into our hands. And I think sort of the, the moaning about playing out from the back, look, you can kick it long and have what happened against Wolves happen to us, where you lose the first ball header, it's knocked down, it's a through ball, you give a goal and a red card away in five seconds from kicking long. Playing out from the back isn't just about being dogmatic, it is about being able to create opportunities against teams that are moving more resources into your defensive third. And I thought we did it well, but but for the goal, I can't see past blaming Shaka for this. And a lot of people listening will say, of course you can't. That is your worldview generally. So I want to be on record. Shaka has been fantastic recently. He has been ever-present, totally available, playing well, fundamental to everything that we're doing that's working. In general, Granite Shaka has been as good as, and again, has he been a world-class sensational miracle? No, I'm not saying that. He's been as good as he can be, and I've been very pleased with that. This is a Shaka error, and I think we covered this a little on the Instant Reaction Pod, but the Energy with which he runs back to Leno, showing him his boots, give it to me, making himself available in a situation not unlike what he, where he receives the ball for the goal. And there's options on, and I think his lack of two-footedness, his his slight mis, not miscontrol, but but lack of real comfortable early control leads him to do something crazy. And and I think, Clive, my final point on this is just if you are a professional footballer and you are given the ball in a tough spot by your keeper, and you then bank the ball into your own goal off a guy standing next to you, regardless of whether or not it was the best situation to be put in, you you have to do better than that. You are a professional central midfielder for Arsenal Football Club. You have to do better than that. And that may sound obvious, but I think I think the narrative that it's a Leno error is is unfair on Leno. So I mean, do you do you want to have maybe a more measured take? No, no, it's not a Leno error. Um, it was a very, it's a simple thing we've seen many, many times before. And and I quite like the way um, Shaka and Party are sort of connecting. And the first goal was great. You know, when Party has it, he wants to play to Shaka. Shaka points back towards Marie. And he realizes that Party's not moving. I'm giving it to you. So he has to shift his position. He shifts it. Party shifts his position. Gets it back one, two, bang through the lines. Six people out of the game. Arsenal running back. You can almost see our shape. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can see our shape. We've got basically two double tens in Odegaard and William. We've got two wider men in um, sort of Saka and Aubameyang and um, Tierney on the one side. And you've basically got the width. You've got, you got centrality. You've got a box in the centre of the pitch. And you're thinking, oh, this is great. This is brilliant. This is just what we want. You got you too deep, you're too high. Turn around, players. Connect with Vatini, Abamyang, Saka, who are the daggers, right? So I'm sitting there loving it. But actually, what really happened was we almost got in some. We spoke about the instant reaction. 
sometimes when Arsenal are ahead, it's a problem for them how they manage the fact that they're superior. I don't think we're ruthless enough and we lose concentration and we've done this many times before over, over many years and um, and Shaka just takes a touch. I just watched the goal again, Elliot, and I remember on the interview action we sort of said that he sprints to the ball. Actually, he does sprint to the ball to get separation with his man, but he slows down perfectly as the ball's arriving. Just his feet, he just decides to take a touch. As soon as he takes a touch, the picture changes. All the angles are gone. He had three men to hit. You know, as long as he overhits into space, he has three men to hit and he didn't do it, has to touch, and now he's got a really difficult skill, which is to chip it over on your wrong foot. And he's too close to goalkeepers, he can't set it back. And so he got himself into a situation by just making a wrong decision. And it's just a football mistake, maximum cost. Burnley didn't do anything to get the goal. I know they pressed us, but we went through them down the middle, went through them down the outside. We had 16 crosses, 15 shots, all big chances. We, it was us, again, that beat ourselves, really, just by that one foot point decision. But really, the lesson is, when you are get that first goal, make sure you get the second one. Make sure you really are ruthless. Get the separation, and then force them to change their game plan. And their only way back in was to put more pressure on us, get closer to us, rely on a very bone-dry pitch that was prepared beautifully, which maybe made Shaka take the extra touch. Now, they're playing to their strengths. That's their prerogative as a home team. And they did that, and they tested us. Our passing was slow because the pitch was not conducive to quick passing. There was no watering at halftime, I saw. You know, and it's just the way football is. And um, we just got suckered a bit because we didn't do our job. So on this day, leave Leno alone. He saved us from actually a worse podcast, the one where we talked about a 2-1 defeat. That's what we should be talking about. How did that... That big chance from Burnley going in the second half happened. So, um, so yeah, it's Shaka's error, and we just got to move on from it. And hopefully, he does. And uh, real quick, because Burnley's certainly not his lucky team. Yeah, I, I think the thing that frustrates me then, Paul, is that this game that looked like it could be so easy. I mean, after we got the goal, we were all over them. We were on top of them. Um, yeah, we we obviously give give away the goal back to them, and then there is this period where mm-hmm. we just go flat. Um, yeah. You know, we, we pretty well hammered them on XG. I mean, I, I think Scott had it as 2.23 expected goals. But from around the half hour mark until the 80th minute, we took about three shots with a combined expected goals of like 0.3. If you just look yeah. at it from... In the second half, from the time Lacazette comes on for Odegaard until the 80th minute, when I think Burnley sort of shut it all down and, and sat deep, we had no expected goals, no shots. So yeah. that's yeah. the thing that worries me. I think that, the that's way that's the really yeah. interesting. I, I I just did a rewatch and I came to exactly the same conclusion. I think all of the discussion of this game, in some ways, revolves around that period in the second half until we started to fire. And I was trying to work out. What were the chess moves? We we brought on subs, but that wasn't it. Because even when we had the subs on, we like we actually had Laka come on. We brought on Pepe, and it still wasn't quite happening yet until something happened. And I, I guess I have my vote for what the something was. Well, why, why don't you tell and me yours? Because I have a. You'll be shocked to hear I have a pretty strong opinion about it myself. So we got the players on the pitch. Uh, Pepe was on a few minutes and it still wasn't happening. Lack had been on for four or five minutes and nothing much was happening. And then Saka 
stopped playing on the left wing and started basically drifting in and becoming a 10 and joining the dots in the middle. And for me, that was when we suddenly started having overloads and interesting triangles and people creating shit and the their defense not knowing what was coming at them next. Um, and so that, that was the chess move deliberate or just the the guy being drawn to where the action and the play was and not been willing to sit on the left side of the pitch. It was a good thing we'd swapped sides of the pitch. I wonder if this was in some way part of the thinking because there was discussion about Saka versus Pepe on one side or the other. But Saka had taken to to rotationally fouling his one uh, defender he was facing there. Um, so he was well online for a, a second yellow. I wonder if that was partly why he was moved to the left. But either way, um, after a couple of minutes of Pepe being on, Saka moves, starts moving centrally and joining all the dots, and we start looking dangerous. D- Danny helps too when he comes on. Uh, maybe maybe uh, the fact that he's he's a bit more rat-a-tat and pushes up a little bit, but I guess it was him versus party, so you could argue it either way. But I thought... Danny did actually speed us a little. But for me, the big move was not so much the subs. Like, I also think that Laka coming on, in a way, freed up Aubameyang. We obviously needed somebody in the middle to be, uh, to to get at crosses and to bang up against their centre-backs. But it did free Aubameyang to go wherever he thought the action might be. But for me, the biggest move was Saka coming off the left wing and drifting into that central kind of 10 or attacking 8-10 role um, on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to pretend that Odegaard had the game of a lifetime because I I don't think that's the case. I think Mm. the little ways in which he creates those levels of play, you know, whether it's pulling the attention of a defender away to make space for someone else or stitching things together, progressive carries progressive passes, final third entries, or just being the wall pass to keep it moving. I I think that role, we've seen it. When Smith-Rowe plays there, we play well. When Odegaard plays there, we play well. When those two aren't there, we don't play well. It has been that simple this season. And I look at what happened in this game when Lacazette came on for Odegaard, and that sub felt all wrong to me. And I think we really, really struggled to figure out how we wanted to progress the ball from that moment, from the 63rd minute to the 80th minute, and I picked the 80th minute because in part, I, I do think if you watch this game, at some point around the 80th minute, Burnley finally call off the dogs and they sit deep and then it's just, we have the ball on the edge of the box and we're pounding them. But from the 63rd to the 80th minute, at 1-1, needing to really get on top of the game, we had almost no uh, almost no final third entries. We had no shots. Um, the ball really struggled to get from back to front. And I think bringing on Lacazette for Odegaard changed that dynamic substantially, and it took us a while to really, to really adjust to it. And Clive, but 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 you know, can I can yeah, I of course, ask please. one thing? Because I like I like Odegaard. I thought he was very good in the first half, but we weren't creating anything. Uh, be, I think there's a reason we actually took Odegaard off. It wasn't really working. No, I mean, well, look, we had, we had, in the in the third in the uh, what 18 minutes he was on the pitch before he came off in the second half. We had four shots. Now they weren't amazing shots, but we were still kind of getting it up the pitch into the final third. If you look at our pass map from the period when he comes off to the 80th minute, it's wild. It's like 
the center of the pitch is lava. The final third is lava. Like, and, and again, there may be some correlation causation here that I'm getting wrong. I fully accept it. But I, I think Lacazette as the between the lines facilitating player is a quality in his game that we have maybe overstated. And and even if he's a little better at it than I'm giving him credit for, I certainly think it changed the dynamic. I don't think the team adjusted quickly. One of the things I'll say about Arteta's subs, it's not that I think they're always bad, but I think sometimes they, they require a change that the team needs time to adjust to, and there's some lost momentum or lost time there to be effective while the team tries to sort of transition to to the new style. I do want to read out a statistic that I think is kind of wild. It is 271 minutes played in all competitions since Alexander Lacazette had a shot other than a penalty. 271 minutes of playing time without even shooting. Now again, that doesn't mean he's not doing some good stuff. But I, I still struggle, and maybe I'm just being too binary in the way I think about players, but I think when you bring on a forward... Who is it? Who has the number nine on his back and say, you're not going to have a shot for more than three full games of match time. That, whatever else he's doing right, that's not going to cut it. And, and Clive, I mean, I'd, I'd like to get your take on our struggles right. during that period. And, and if you want to defend Lacazette, by the way, I'm here for it. I am not trying to say Lacazette is a garbage player. That's not my point. My point is no. he has a role in the team and he does a lot of those things well, but if in 271 minutes you don't even take a shot, then whatever else you're doing well, I think is has to be is being undermined by the fact that you have the nine on your back and you haven't taken a shot in three games. Okay, so um, there seemed to be a period just for half time, and right up until almost like it felt like the last ten minutes where we just lost our way, right? So. So this happened in the first half. Right? This didn't just happen. I just, I just remember being frustrated when I watched it. And I always like look at a game in, in almost three thirds, almost what we did in the first third, middle third, and and then towards the end. And it actually, it was a, it was a, un, you know, it was, looked like a first half hour game, looked like a sort of middle period where I don't know what happened. I don't think they were that great. They, we gave them a goal. Obviously, they could be a bit emboldened. They did have a period where a bit of pressure, but we stopped building up. We stopped passing through the thirds. That means we weren't getting to Odegaard. We weren't getting to mm. our double tens. You know, we weren't getting to them. And so when you bring on Lacazette, you, you must, you, you got to say to yourself, what you immediately thought, he's brought him on Lacazette now. You've now judged him as a 10 and a nine in one conversation, right? He's not doing an in-between-the-line stuff. Well, maybe that wasn't his job, right? He, and he's not getting shots. Now, I think he brought on the second forward, because Arsenal said, sod this, we can't build up. Let's go 4-2-4. Let's go 4-2-4, two in midfield, and let's hit the front man and play from there. Because we can't play on this pudding. We can't play through. We're not at the carpet. Let's hit the front man. Let's not put that on Aubameyang, because he's the guy who's going to get us the goals. Let's put a body on there that's strong, that can fight these guys, much like the third goal at Leicester. Fight these guys and and create distraction and give Aubameyang room. And so... Your thoughts on Lacazette, you, you know where I am with this. We need a bigger version of that's quicker, faster, stronger, younger that can do that job. But in this role, he wasn't asked to be a 10. He was asked to be a second forward, high up, get your body on them, make sure they've got to mark you so our superstar can find the pockets he needs to to get a goal. That's how he was used. And we started to play really, not on the Lacazette sub, but on the Pepe sub is when we really started to play 
and, and I think then, you know, that the question is, uh, who our best two white men are. I think we, well, I think I know who they are, but that's what on current form. And maybe that was the miss. We didn't quite have enough danger on the pitch to hurt them when we had superiority. So in this game, Lacazette, you're right. He's a different type of player for me. He's a nine and a half, a bit like Firmino, just on a profile wise, maybe not the same deadly passing, but he's that middle pivot. That's a body that people play around and, Maybe goal scoring is not his primary function. You know, he may still be a top scorer. I'm not sure. Maybe not anymore. But yeah, I want more from that role. But in this game, I understand why he was brought. Fair enough. Um, you know, I, I I will admit, Clive, that I think sometimes my analysis of Lacazette is a little reductive. Um, I don't know that it, it's totally off base, but I I have always had this nagging feeling that the things he does that we praise are maybe not as good as we praise them for being to be worth what we lose in other areas. And and I think about that part of this game, you guys will remember where Aubameyang carries it through the midfield sort of in a counterattack and gives it to Saka with the perfect weight into the box. And Saka just doesn't get his feet sorted so he doesn't get the shot off. Mm-hmm. Like, if Lacazette's doing that, we're like, see, this is why it doesn't matter if he doesn't shoot. He's, he's a good facilitator. And we act like Aubameyang can't do any of that. And I think we we are not complimentary enough of Aubameyang's... I, don't, um, I think you're right. Sorry, man, I want to say yeah. something. I think I'm I'm getting more and more and more comfortable. I know it sounds crazy because he's always been a centre forward most of his life, but I'm getting real comfortable with Aubameyang at centre forward because this is the type of game that's a real test for him. And I thought he was super good in this game, particularly in the first third. And and his movement and spinning and I just think he's. I just look at him and think, okay, that's our centre forward. And everyone else, you better you better carry his luggage for him, right? Simple as that. You better carry his bags for him because he's the guy. And that's what that's what Lacazette was doing. I'll carry some water for you. I'll make sure you don't get kicked. And you know your views on on Lacazette. I, I'm there. Well, I've been there for a while in, in a normal market. He may have gone in the summer, but he's here. He's had some good moments. He had some issues, shall we say? And it's time to move on, create a different face with a different player in that forward role. And I think we all agree on that. So, um, but yeah, in this day, ugly game, ugly pitch. Against a team, you know, the new Stoke, we need to get bodies around them and push them back. And that's exactly what we did for the last 15 minutes. Yeah. Hey, Clive, can I, can I ask a quick question? Um, do you think that they take a, one of the pitches at Colney and uh, have poor old Arson spin in his grave, but they, they dig it up with the tractor before they head off to Burnley to play on it for like, <laughs> is that something they do at London well, Colney? You- the teams do this all the time. I mean, even at non-league level, you have situations with hilly pitches. You have, one, you have one part of the pitch where you leave the grass long so the ball doesn't run out. You do yeah. things in certain corners. I mean, this is just football. It's your prerogative as a as the home team to prepare the sure. pitch as you as you feel. I don't like it. I think it should be a law. I think it should be a certain length of grass. Don't used to do it. Do it to us as well. Lots of teams do it. They don't. They don't want Arsenal passing around them. They don't want that. They want to get close to us. They want us to have a touch, and that is so they can get close and create and block off lanes, etc. So that's exactly what happened, and it worked. It absolutely worked on the day. It stopped us playing, and in the end, we struggled. So we had to go to a bit more of a forty-four, in my opinion. And I haven't looked massively closely at this game mm. from a tactical point of view. I just looked at it from a you broke my heart point of view. So, so that forty-four thing is just something that I felt that the game naturally went to because we were 
you know, chasing the goal, you know, could have been even, even more people in that front line, but just a feeling that I had. Yeah. Well, uh, Paul, I need to ask you a question in the form of spoken song lyrics, if you're okay with that. Yeah. Sure. Var. Ugh. Good God, y'all. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. That's the question. <gasps> Var. Ugh. Yeah. Good God, y'all. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. Yeah. I mean, look, that was uh, tortured, and I'm sorry that we did it, but... I would uh, I would suggest that this is a talking point that I am both loath to have to get into again, but also cannot avoid. This is an absolute stonewall, cannot miss, no question penalty. And mm-hmm. what's even more frustrating is in games like this pre-VAR, where you've been effed by the refs early in the game, the one thing they have the chance to do later in the game, if they know they've maybe gotten it wrong, is is even it up if there's a You always see it, right? Ref sends a guy off. He goes in at halftime. He looks at the video. He realizes, oh, I don't know about that. That was kind of close. And what does he do in the second half? He maybe gives you a soft penalty or he maybe sends off another guy, evens it up, realizes I owe you a borderline call. He gives us the later penalty. Okay, it's not a pen. Pre-VAR, at least the first error would be fixed by the second error. But now in VAR... The first error somehow stays in error, and the second error is corrected. It is, it is the worst of all worlds. It takes away the ability of the ref to create equity, but it also got the call freaking wrong, which is not supposed to happen. I, I can't come up with an explanation of this, but in my mind, I believe, which is where all things are believed in your mind. I don't. What would I say? In my hands. In my in my mind, I believe that had the ref gone to the monitor and been given the chance to look at that handball, he gives it. I think the VAR referee was reluctant to overrule his his on-pitch ref for whatever reason, proximity or whatever it is. I just don't think the ref saw it. Pepe calls for a handball the first time, which is it's not. Then he calls for it the second time. I think if he doesn't call for it the first time, I, I think it confused the ref. Like, what are you calling for? I, I, I'm, I've been racking my brain to understand how this how they arrive at this decision and arrive at it again on VAR, and I can't come up with anything. Yeah. So, uh, uh, oh, incredibly frustrating, absolutely a penalty. Um, here's how I think they came to it. I think it was policy. I think they had a, a get-together very, very recently to say, uh, we're getting loads of shit over stupid handballs. So anything that's close, proximity rule, isn't a penalty. So that their knee-jerk is, it's not a penalty. I mean... Uh, sorry, not even their knee jerk. It's their default position is if it's close, it's not a penalty. In this case, this guy has an outstretched arm. And it's not that kind of he's he's kind of adjusting his balance or he's running at speed or all those really good reasons for having that stretched arm. His arm is stretched out because he knows Pepe is about to run past him. And he is a tree trunk a, a branch of an arm that he's going to stick right out there so that he doesn't have to pull his jersey, just you can't get past him. So it's basically a, a, a barrier holding move to stop Pepe getting around him. That's why his arm is out at basically 90 degrees from his body. So proximity doesn't apply because this guy has stuck his arm deliberately where it does not belong. He might as well, it's like uh, he, he's basically taken a goalkeeper's position with his his limbs to to make himself bigger for the shot. So proximity doesn't work here. 
it's not a natural movement. It's only natural in the sense he stuck his arm straight out to stop the player running past him. Um, it's just bad, 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 bad. It's ridiculous. It makes them look stupid, unfortunately, uh, def- despite the fact that they'll go, they'll limp back from this um, having been embarrassed publicly. It doesn't get us our, our penalty, our goal. It doesn't rectify the situation. It's just, I don't think there's a conspiracy against Arsenal, but I think we've really been on the wrong end of uh, a lot of a lot of policy decisions that get changed too late for us, and so other teams get hurt too. But we definitely got screwed over on that one. Yeah. And the, the other thing I feel about it is at that point we had to earn the penalty. Um, you know, there's a reason he stuck his arm out. Pepe was beginning to go at him time and time again, and he was on the ropes. And so it was kind of a desperate move to stick that arm out. So, like, it was a period of pressure. We were, the goal kind of was coming. Um, And, you know, off the next almost handball, we hit the bar. Um, Danny hits the, the upright. The pressure was there. This was something... This wasn't just one of those technical handballs off in the corner when the ball's going in the opposite direction to the goal. This was Pepe bearing down on goal, about to expose this guy. So it's yeah. incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I, look, I I don't know. How, th- this is the problem. So, Clive, it is – people are probably getting tired of being told, yeah, the, the call is bad, but you still have to go win the game when we're talking about that constantly. Again, I I reached the conclusion that Arsenal could have done more to win this game. Arsenal could have won this game. That the handball did not prevent us from winning. And yet, in a low-scoring sport, when you keep winding up with decisions that are so harmful to your ability to go win the game, yeah, it must be tiring for people to hear us try to be even keeled about it and circumspect about it because yeah, it'd be fun to just lean into they're biased. They're bent. They hate us. They're out to get us. I can't get there because I can't, the reason I can't get there is I can't understand what the refs would have to gain by being out to get Arsenal. All right. Maybe if we were in a title race and you're like, Oh, they're secret Liverpool fans and it's Arsenal versus Liverpool, but like we're 10th. What do they care if we beat Burnley or not? So, like, I I don't think they're bent. I don't think there's bias. But I do think that when you start to aggregate all the red cards, all the penalties not given, all the penalties given against that are soft, it becomes very hard to achieve anything in a season when those margins don't go for you. Um, we also missed some chances. So I, I want to, before we take a break and get to part two where we're going to answer some, some listener questions, I want to ask you about Pepe specifically. I think it is easy when players miss chances to have them become scapegoats. And understandably, look, the job is to put the ball in the back of the net, and he misses a really presentable chance. But I also look at Pepe, and I say he was probably our most dangerous player in the whole game. He changed the game substantially down the stretch, beating a player, creating potentially two penalties. The second one, which was overruled, from a really excellent stretching move to to get his to make good contact from the ball coming across in the air. Um, you know, yeah, obviously, his right foot too. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and I thought it was really good contact. I mean, I, I was really impressed with this Pepe performance, and I do think that it begs the question that Willian, while involved in our first goal, maybe doesn't carry the threat. You know, does this performance once again force Arteta to look at Pepe as someone who just has that extra that extra final third quality that you need to win games when the margins are so close? 
Yeah, a lot there, really. I think uh, on the the longest question in history. (laughs) I can do more. So on the the, uh, VAR stuff, I think, just briefly, I think... We balls right, and we Peter steps into the ball to to, to create, you know, close the distance and blocks off a player going around him. I mean, ridiculous, and um, let's not let's not waste any time there because, in the end, we got a situation developing where we are now the smallest big club. We are the smallest of the big six. We haven't got, you know, the Mourinho manager is gonna gonna cause trouble with referees. Our manager's polite. You know, we are the smallest big six team, so we sometimes can be the team that's used to say, oh, look, we don't always give big clubs the decisions. And I think we've got to be a little bit more dogmatic about, you know, our presence and how our players are treated and kicked. And we've got to, we've got to squeal a bit more, I'm afraid. It works. They're human beings. And I think it will change things slightly and change those margins for us. All the other teams do it and they make sure they're protected. People don't want to miss those games. Referees want to be in those games. I'm afraid it's something we have to address. We've got to be a bit bigger. At the moment, we're looking a bit small in that big six. And I think I'd much rather be talking about some of the good things in this game, shape-wise, tactically, how we use Callum Chambers in the back three, how we use double tens, how we how we wrap Tierney around, how we wrapped Aubameyang inside. You know, it's, it's, it's some good things happening here. We're just missing it because we're talking about this rubbish and we deserve a little bit more. We're not perfect, but we deserve a little bit more. And one of the imperfections maybe is the selection of Willian. And it's not, again, it's not a player. We found a player that's starting to play and he was no worse than some other players. And But we see Pepe come on and do what he did. You've got to ask yourself, with two, another two points we've dropped and... I just feel you're asking yourself, okay, what are we doing in this guy? So we've got some big games coming this week and I think your question around how we use Pepe and his use and where he's he's in the hierarchy in the squad will be real apparent with the the two games coming up for the rest of the week. And for my opinion, he needs to start both of them. And maybe he will ask why he didn't start this game. Maybe he will because he needs to because he's, he's absolutely right on the cusp of being a very good player, a very influential player, we know he's got talent, and people that like that type of player will see that talent more more easily. And people that look at wingers and say, you need to get better crosses, you need to be more consistent, will always worry about these flighty players that kick one in the top corner one minute and kick one in the north bank the next. They always worry about those type of players. I like players that can do things which are uncoachable, and he has lots of that. So he is on the cusp. We need that next man up. Aubameyang is the only one that has the devil to score really wants to hurt people. Saka's done it. He's 19. We talk about Son, Kane and Bale just pre the podcast. They're three men. We're relying on a 19-year-old to get us out of jail. A Real Madrid loanee and a 20-year-old kid who's got muscular issues to get us out of jail. We need our men to step up. And we need Pepe to be given the license to be the player we, we, hope, he'll, we hope he can be. He may never be the £72 million player in our eyes, but that's just finance. But he's real close. And we're a lot of people looking at Teta now to say, look, you've, you've worked with this guy. You've got him consistent. He's doing the work off the ball. He's working back. He's working forward. He's running behind. He's playing on both sides. He's scoring. He's shooting. He's assisting. Play him. Don't let him miss these next two games and we, don't, we mess up. Because the people that are critiquing him will have him for this. You see what I mean? If, he's, mm-hmm. if, if he is looking after the guy who he signed... I'm not looking after the guy who another person signed. 
but it's obviously better. You know, you leave yourself open to criticism if you do that. So we've got a couple of games coming out, and I think people are watching real close as to what he does. He needs to make the right decisions. And by the way, everything's there in the football. The numbers, the influence, it's, it's all there. So it's up to you to see it and pick it. I, I think he will. He, I hope so. Otherwise, um, there'll be a lot of people uh, not very happy. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? Because on the one hand, you could be like, look, we've got a big game Thursday, a big game Sunday, and a big game Thursday. And he wants someone to be fully fresh for that. He started Aubameyang in this game. He started Sack in this game. So Pepe is the one he's really keeping wrapped in, in cotton wool to some extent. I mean, I, he brought him on, but, you know, keeping him fresh so he can be really uh really influential in those games. But given that he started Willian against Leicester and given how frequently he's chosen Willian, even over Pepe in some situations, people are understandably nervous. And, it, you know, it doesn't have to be Willian is crap and Pepe's a star because, first of all, I don't think that's a reflection of the reality of the season, although at times it has been. It can just be that, as you said and said so well, Clive, one is better than the other and the margins are small and you need them to go for you. So he's, you know, he's not doing himself any favors with this. So, I mean, Paul, I I, I, I want to kind of start to wrap this section up because we're, we're going to answer some questions. But, you know, the way the game plays out and, and you know, the way it finishes, obviously super disappointing. We put a lot of pressure on the end. Ceballos hits the upright, as you, as you talked about. It's, it's a really, really bad outcome at a time when, you know, I think any... Any expectation we have of being able to of being able to get where we want to go in the league really depends on winning these kind of games. Um, just as a final thought on this game before we get to the questions, how damaging is this in your view for for whatever the goals are this season? Because I mean, we still play all the teams above us, but at some point, you know, we're we're going to get to a situation where you can't drop any points, and that's just unrealistic. Yeah, um, I think it's very 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 damaging as a result um i only have myself to blame as a jinx in that i had this was just before this game that i took out the old spreadsheet and spreadsheeted my way into how we just needed to get the following series of results against the following teams based mm -hmm. on who still had to play city well now we, we know who to blame <laughs> yeah 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 and this i i concocted it all but it did kind of require the Burnley result. So I think numerically and uh, kind of just the morale and the focus of the team in the league, this this lets a huge amount of air out of the balloon to where, yeah, it kind of hurt. But hey, shit can happen, right? We beat Spurs, gulp, in the next game. Fortunately, we caught them at a real lull in terms of their form. Um, he says, not having seen the game. Actually, I did see the game. It was very painful. They're very, very good. Mm. They, they're zipping it around like lunatics. But uh, look, it's it's bad form to wish an injury on a player, even a Spurs player. So I'm not going to do that. I just like them to reschedule the next Kane or Bale injury to pull it forward a little bit earlier. Not a new one. Not an extra injury. That would be bad. Terrible. People should never do that. However, um, yeah, uh, we we could have a challenging game against those guys. But hey, it's a derby; anything can happen. Uh, so we'll see. But it, that could reignite our charge again. Uh, you know, if we get three points, four points out of those two games, I think we'd have been happy enough. So um, it could be all back on 
next weekend uh, after, after a stunning Olympiakos victory. So um, I, I, I do want to say a little bit on the Willian versus Pepe thing. I think they have different utility. Uh, I agree with everything Clive said. And Pepe is a far more dangerous and talented player. But our first half was a very, very good half. Um, I, I didn't quite catch what Clive said, but then I haven't watched the second, the, the late part of the first half. Maybe we did tail off there, but I felt it was a very even good half and we played well. And I, you know, I look at Willian and I wonder what it is exactly he does. I mean, I see him running around and making passes and stuff. And he's a good continuity guy. He's not super exciting, but we played well and we had a structure and it all made sense. And you felt that we should get a second goal. And I didn't feel that way in the second half. Even when Pepe came on to begin with, you know, we still needed a piece to connect stuff. And that piece happened to need to be Saka. I think uh, Clive correctly um, ascribes Lacazette's role to being more of a forward. And it was, we needed Saka to connect the dots there. And so Willian does, Willian's played for different reasons than Pepe. Like him, hate him. Um, think he's acceptable, which is more my position. I see why he's played, even if he doesn't do a huge amount. He does kind of mix himself into the play and and play the 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 solid ball, the solid pass at the right time. Now that he's hitting some form, and so I don't look at the next two games and say, oh well, it really tells us something about Willian or Pepe. I think it's just where the rat Pepe is beginning to get the faith work out how we play and over time should be should get all the minutes but in the short to medium term i think willian has utility to get us kind of playing in an arteta kind of way uh, a la the first half against uh, burnley and we struggled to get that going in the second half with him or without him on the pitch yeah okay well i i don't really i, I don't really disagree with that i i think there's a the problem with this game right is that there's so many angles you can take. You can just talk about the missed chances and say we actually played fine. If you if you take the chances, we're not having any of this d- debate. You could talk about the referee decision and say, look, the referee decision is the game. If he gives it properly or doesn't overturn the last one, then we win the game. You could just blame it on Shaq and say they didn't really create much. And if he doesn't kick it into his own net, uh, essentially, we win the game. There's a lot of things that you could say were dispositive, and they all went against us. We didn't finish the chances that were right there and presentable. We didn't get the call from the referee, and we did kick it into our own net. We go a long way to working hard to lose games. Um, it is, well, to drop points. We didn't lose game. But, you know, to, to that extent, um, it, it's almost impressive. It really is. And I, I feel Nobody for Arteta. Nobody does yep. it better. <laughs> Nobody does it better. You're right. And, and I... I feel for Arteta in a sense because you look at this game and you say, what's wrong with this game? I mean, Callum Chambers winds up playing a really good game. It's an interesting selection. It works. We create the chances to win. They, they create relatively little. And still somehow everything conspires against us. I, I, I think the next thing Arteta is going to have to figure out, though, is how to avoid those long lulls where the game sort of drifts. And, and how to influence sooner and more effectively with the substitution. So maybe that's something we'll come to in part two, just to scant 53 minutes into the podcast. So... Uh, that is the end of part one. Hang <laughs> on, I've just had another thought on that. <laughs> oh, dear God. Uh, what we will do now is take a brief break and come back with, like, one of your questions. <laughs> we'll see. We'll take a brief break. We'll be right Who's back. Stay the with lucky us. lucky winner? 
Hey everyone, before we get started, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or, if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all of this for only $15 a month. That's the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports podcasting experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com forward slash join. bwhustle.com forward slash join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more. But that's bwhustle.com slash join. Okay, we're back, and now it is time to take your questions. Uh, For those of you who have bothered to stick around this long, uh, thank you for your questions. Look, if there's one thing that you know about us, it's that we're going to take every opportunity to run long uh, whenever possible. But hopefully, uh, it's a Monday, you need the content, and it it helps you get through. Uh, I'm going to start with one we found on Discord for our patrons. Patrons? Patrons. Uh, The Gunner Tap says, Clive... Not to be a conspiracy theorist, but it seems like any time there's an opportunity not to start Pepe, Arteta takes it. If he doesn't start Thursday night, it would mean he has only started two of our last seven games despite being in good form. What does he have to do to get a run of games? This has been a very popular question, and I want to apologize because there's so many people that asked it in so many different ways. Um, so I just want to sort of gesture at, at all of you who asked it. But but Clive, I mean, is it is it a Pepe-Arteta problem or is it something else? What does he have to do? I don't think it's a problem. Well, I don't want to believe there's a problem there. Um, but I do think one of the jobs as a coach is that you've got to make sure that your selection criteria is quite transparent to everybody around you, including your players. And players, most importantly, they know where they fit. They know where they fit in that dressing room. They know what they got to do to be on the pitch. And I don't think, you know, we can debate paper when he started and, we can debate his consistency. We can debate his work rate. We can, all these things we've spoken about over the previous 18 months. But I think we can all see he's made step fours in all the key areas of the game. He's, he can play both sides. He can work back. He can work forward. He's two-way. His reaction when he loses the ball or the ball is lost in his area is immediate. He defends right to right close to his fullback when he needs to. Yeah, he's high, he runs beyond, he comes short, he turns around, he goes wide, he plays on the inside, he plays on the exterior. I mean, and then he runs into the box to create chances and shooting opportunities. You know, we just need to do it. We need to do it more, more. That's all he needs to do. So I'm looking at this and saying, okay, if I'm, you've got to now reward this guy for doing exactly what you've asked him to do. And what you mustn't do is give people the impression that this, whatever he does is not quite enough. And if someone else does just a little bit, that's enough for him to start games. You know, and if you create that dynamic, you're going to get a problem for yourself. And and the best selectors of all, I tell you now, are the players in that dressing room. And if they start to feel there's something that's not quite balanced, that's when you start to lose people. So, I think Arteta is not like that. I don't want to believe that. I think he's got a plan for this week. He has a plan for Saturday. I love the plan he had for Saturday. I loved. I loved the team he picked. It was working. We dropped off for a period. 
the message for me would be we got to learn to play better one nil football. You know, that's our issue. We seem to drop away. We almost, we almost play two nil football one nil. You heard me say that before, but I really think it's an issue for us. We got to be better at one nil, then play two nil football at two nil. Mm. You know, and I think that's what we need to do. And that, but I don't want to. I don't want to believe that people are <laughs> insinuating because that would be really disappointing. Because I think I know a little bit about this guy, this player. We've all watched him develop, and he's a much better player than the player that arrived. And I think he deserves much more starts. Yeah, I mean, Cannon Fodder podcast uh, at Pod Cannon Fodder asked the question as well, but sort of put it in the form of a statement, which is William starts off the back of one good game and a couple decent cameos. Pepe has put in a couple months of great performances recently, decisive attacking, positional discipline, hard work. I'm pretty firmly Arteta in, but this situation is baffling. And I, I do have to admit that like whether, look, I think we all agree that Arteta has to have some role for William. I mean, we own the guy and we're paying him a fortune, but you know, it does seem like William has a very low threshold of what he has to do to get starts. And Pepe has a much higher one. Um, Paul, I'm not going to let you answer that question because I'm going to ask you one that I think is much more in your wheelhouse, if that's okay with you. Okay. Joel Cortez at Chairman Joel uh, says, AVPMP, is Pablo Marie Arsenal's best central defender this season? Luis always waiting to drop a bollock. Gabriel looks good, but has at least one shaky moment per game. Holding decent but not top quality. Marie looks assured and understated. Uh, I, I'm i ready to eat some humble pie. Is Marie our best mm. center back this season? Um... Look, it, it, we don't have a centre-back so good that he has separated himself self from the rest. I mean, long-term, I hope it's Gabriel who, who can establish himself as our cornerstone, our capstone in the bridge that is our defence. Um, I think uh, Paolo Murray is definitely in with a, a shout for bestish defender but like i'm a big pablo marie fan i was out there plugging for this guy when nobody else uh, was talking about how he was fast the pelters i took elias you wouldn't believe the shit i took and nobody would understand i don't know where where, where would you have taken that shit <laughs> is there is there a place that you're thinking of specifically like maybe someone you talk to many times a week and then produce and publish that you, conversation. You and were about people... one. It was a mob. It was a swarm. <laughs> Most people asking why I cared how fast he was. But anyway, I was obsessed with how fast Pablo Marie was. Turns mm. out he's reasonably fast. Mm. Um, look, I don't know if he's our best center back. Um, I think he's pretty good. And, but we haven't seen that much of him still. The, the same answer for when he didn't look very good is we haven't seen that much. I think he's pretty bloody good. Um, he's, He's uh, he's got something the others don't have uh, in large part. Gabriel's still a bit young. Maybe he has that. He has the he's a left footer. Obviously, he, he's mobile. He's smart. He's calm. He he has the kind of calm that infuses other players too. Um, I, he has the perma to sackers, but maybe not quite as much. But with more speed and pace, he's very front-footed, proactive, so it's consistent with him and Gabriel, which is nice. You, they kind of do, in some ways, some similar things in the same spot. Who's our, I, I'm going to say something that's very unpopular. Who's our best centre-back uh, this season? Uh, David Luiz. Sorry, yeah. everybody. Yeah. That, that's my take. He, uh, and 
there's not a lot of players I'll go with the on and off the pitch, but he's very important to this team. And anybody with a pair of eyes and ears can tell that you do need a few leaders. He's the leader. Um, and like the problem with David Luis is he drops a Mustafi. Only he doesn't need to call it that because he's he's templated the Luis. But he drops a Luis, a Chaka, a Mustafi every now and then. That's that's the one. Every now and then I want to kill him, um, <laughs> and, and possibly a little too often. But if he didn't do that, he's probably our most. I don't know if he's our best. He's our most important defender including on the pitch. So uh, it's a tough one, though. We don't exactly have VVD back there at the moment. Yeah, the funny thing is, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I mean, I I think he does... I'm not the, here to be popular. No, I, I don't necessarily... Lord you know what, knows. I'll leave it at that. I don't necessarily disagree with you. I, I think Pablo Marie has been much, much better than I expected. Um, I don't think I he's had him. to do a hell of a lot of defending yet. But, yeah. you know, look, he's been better than I expected. And if he continues in this trajectory, he's he's a nice asset to have at a price that does not look particularly uh, uh, worrisome at all. So He's a nice piece of asset, too. He is a nice piece of asset. And there is no humble pie I enjoy eating more than an Arsenal player being better than I had anticipated them being. Like, that's the best humble pie to eat. Clive, mm. let me ask you. Uh, what King Henry, King Henri underscore 14 at King Henry underscore 14, uh, pardon me, King Henry 14 underscore E asks, we are 10th in the league and constantly stuttering. Are you surprised that most people are still positive at our quote direction of travel? Um, serious questions need to be asked of Arteta, don't you think? You know what's so interesting, Clive, all I hear is that Arsenal fans are the worst, we're the worst, oh, they're the worst, Arsenal fans are the worst, we're the worst, we're the worst. It's all I hear. Um, and I understand why there is a sense of that sometimes. I actually think all fans, if you just canvas social media, think their fan group is the worst because there's just always going to be arguments, debates, and people moaning. But when I look at Liverpool on Twitter preparing to hound out Jurgen Klopp, who just won them a title with nearly 100 points and a Champions League, and I look at our fans who are mostly trying to be circumspect and, and carefully evaluate Arteta based on our performances over the last few months... I, I have to admit, I'm actually kind of surprised at the extent to which the Arsenal fan base has held its fire. I mean, not look, some people are obviously losing their mind, but are you are you surprised? Are you surprised that there's not more of a, a screaming and yelling fit to get this guy out? We are sitting 10th. <laughs> I think people are, are smart, right? I think January is very important. I think um, up until then, pre-Christmas, we were looking at the results and everything, and what, what are we doing as a club got a couple of players that can't even be named in the squad the squad is too big and so january came along and we were quite efficient in january and so if you're looking at it you're thinking hold on results have improved the squad has been trimmed down we know there's a contract issue we're up to 10 players are going to be in the last year or out contract in the summer so we know what's coming the job is clear but it's not it's almost beyond the manager do you see what i mean so are the club recognizing that yes january showed they are now let's look at the football. Okay, we're getting a few um, better results. In the games that we've lost, we've not been boshed by anybody. You know, we, we're beating ourselves. I mean, even Saturday, you know, the plan for Saturday was perfect until we beat ourselves. You know, we're making adjustments at the right-back situation. We're, we're defending in the air. We're not being bullied. We're kicking people back. We're rolling off front lines. We're, we're using our wide men effectively. We got 15 shots. 
we're we're doing all the right things apart from the stuff that really matters. Do you know what I mean? Getting the results to to actually show that. But people are looking and saying, okay, directionally you're you're going in the right direction. Football wise, tactically, you're we're improved. We are the mistakes we're making are so obvious. I mean, everyone can see them, you know, and they're self inflicting in the main. And we've got referee decisions on top. And so, I think if you're if you're a football fan that's being fair, you say, well, you know what, we're okay, we're moving. Now, previously, you could say, well, actually, have we got an inexperienced manager? Is his job too big for him? We've got situations in the dressing room which are manifesting. Is he managing out people like Ozil and um, Guendouzi ahead of time? And what's happened with Terrell? What's happened with this player? Why is this player being picked? A lot of that's results-driven. And now it's settled down. And now we've got some serenity. Now we can look at the football. And the football's not bad. It's improving. People have got stats. They can look. They can see the shape. They can see what's happening. They can find the causes. In the end... I'm doing this on the on the Monday night. Next Monday's podcast after Spurs. <laughs> People's tolerance may may change. Do you see what I mean? The next time mm. after that game, and I think at the moment we're okay, but you feel there's an undercurrent of people just waiting to say I was right about him. He was not the guy. And that I I tend to feel the right and wrong thing bothers me. It's just about Arsenal really, and and how we're how we're getting there. And I think um, and I look at it. And I just think, okay, we got a big job here. And it's bigger than Arteta. And we need to decide if this club fully behind him or not. Because otherwise, we're hanging him out to dry, really, with a, a subset of players which are, some are really good, some are really coachable, some are not quite there. Mm. If we want to step up to meet our expectations, well, Stan's got to do something. He's got to do something to shortcut this process because fans are patient, but only up to a point. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I think I have the perfect question to follow that up with then for Paul. And this one comes from the underscore Wangarian, the uh, Vangarian, Vangarian, Wangarian. You know what? You get the idea. Um, Paul, so, mm-hmm. so this is perfect. And this is why I, this was the one I was not going to ask Clive under any circumstances because I don't want to work him up. If Klopp became available, would you sack Arteta to get him? No. Um He's a washed-up has-been hack, according to Liverpool supporters. He's he's dead in the water. Dead man walking. Uh, Yeah, it's crazy what's going on over there. Um, No, I wouldn't. Look, uh, I, like, if you were starting from scratch, if we hadn't hired a manager, fuck it, yeah, why wouldn't you? The guy's won the Champions League. He's won the Premier League. He's won uh, the Bundesliga a couple of times. Um, yeah. Sounds pretty good uh, to me. When do we sign him? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you know, you're not making a great argument against it so far. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. Hang on. What did I say? This, what, did I say no or yes? Uh, hang on. I'm switching to yes. No, uh, I wouldn't. Um, well, first of all, it's like, who, who's answering this? Is it me, football supporter? No, I definitely wouldn't. Uh, if you checked my AVI recently. Um, look, I wanted to see Arteta managing. So as a from a personal standpoint, um I ain't going to stop halfway through. From a, If I were director of football at Arsenal, well, I'm halfway through uh, implementing a plan with a particular profile, you'd hope, right? Uh, that there, there is a plan, that there's a profile of players that we're moving to where we're trying to get to. Um, so you don't necessarily swap managers at that point. Similarly, from an ownership standpoint, you're com- you've committed to people. You need a lot of, you need to be Abramovich with deep, 
deep pockets to do something this ruthless and it's going to cost you a shitload of money. And I don't mean to from the manager standpoint. I mean, uh, it, you're going to have a change in direction or change in hiring practices. Uh, you're going to have to get you get clop in. You can't be giving them the, the schlubs we got running around our pitch to execute his plan. <clears throat> um, I mean, there's a reality would I, I would even consider us, but that's another topic. Um, but I do think it's a bit like asking if you'd like to swap for a, a more famous surgeon halfway through your vasectomy while the knife's in your nutsack. It's I like, mean, where do you come up with this stuff? <laughs> I was thinking that you were kind of talking to Clive about this and it was percolating. I was like, oh, I wonder if I'll get a chance on Clive's question to use this analogy. And then you asked me this question. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I just like, I'm excited about our direction, right? And uh, it, uh, I, th there was so much in the game against Burnley in the second half when I looked at it that we weren't yet doing right. Like, there's so much upside to this team. I think Arteta is a super smart coach. I think all of those people who said, well, we'll get this young coach with a big upside. There's a risk. Uh, of course, it'll cost us. There'll be... There'll be mistakes he makes, but that's, you know, that's the upside is we could get a really top class coach here because everybody can see he's smart. Um, can he execute? Uh, can he mature in time? Well, we've just kind of the first half of this season in particular was when all those lessons, those prices were paid. And now it's like dump the stock, uh, switch to the, the new new stock well those transaction costs will kill you if you if you're a day trader and this is one big transaction cost to switch between managers so yeah look uh, Klopp's a great manager but I'm excited about her direction with Arteta and so you're asking the wrong man here about swapping uh, coaches I'm not sure there's one that exists that I'm interested enough uh, to see, like, I think Arteta is a really interesting, smart coach that's going to do all sorts of interesting things when he has the team in place. And uh, I thought we were in a lot of trouble in the first half of this season. We were. <clears throat> and through luck and a bit of design, things have turned around. I am fascinated to see where we go next. We're committed. We're hiring to a plan, one hopes. They have their... their their targets for next summer, one hopes, um, you you can't swap out cloud, cloud, for all sorts of practical reasons, cultural reasons, the morale within the club. It'd be a weird thing to do if you don't have Abramovich's pockets and commitment to throw money at something, because like you're just going to screw up the karma in the club big time. I. I look everything you said makes sense to me. I I'm going to do what I said I wasn't going to do and give Clive a shot at this because <laughs> Clive I I am I'm tor like the goal let's be clear about one thing. The goal is to win everything. The goal isn't to have a project you stand behind. The goal isn't to like the the people at the club. The goal the goal is to win everything. That's it. That's the only goal. It's the only thing you're trying to accomplish. And so I am, and I want to be clear, I have been very much on board with Arteta since Chelsea because I think he is doing an excellent job. There may not be two managers 
in all of world football as good as Jurgen Klopp. And if you can get a guy who can take the sum of the parts and make them not just better, he got 100 points with that Liverpool to, well, 99. He won the Champions League. Nobody looked at that squad and said, that is a 100-point squad. That is a Champions League winning squad. It's not that it's not good. It's not that it's not better than ours, substantially even. But what he did, in my view, and what he did at Dortmund as well, is create the ability to very quickly transform a club into a European superpower. Mikel Arteta may have the ability in his career to achieve similar things. Jurgen Klopp can do that now. And so while I love Arteta, and there are very few exceptions, if Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp are available and want to coach your team, you say, yes, that's it. Clive, am I wrong? I, and, and I get it. It's unpleasant. Nobody nobody wants to think about this. But like there is an op- there is every possibility that Arteta won't work out at Arsenal. That doesn't mean he's bad. It's just the reality is that that's football, as you always say, Clive. If yep. you can get a guy who is as close to a sure thing for success as you can have in football, you just go get him. Why wouldn't you? Well, there's a, there's a bit, there's a bit more to this, right? So I think there's probably another coach that I would be more keen to get. Is that be actually Nagelsmann? I think he's special, but. He's a, he's a very young man as well, so the inexperience issues potentially could still be there. So I have a theory, right? In your life, you have your peak work years. You have your peak moment in your life when you're really at the peak of your career. I think Klopp found his two dream clubs. Dortmund obviously got a history in Germany. He found, he found his club there. He had a bit of time away. He found his perfect club in Liverpool. Liverpool had reached a little bit of a plateau with Rodgers. They took the chance to upgrade. They found a guy that was driven by emotion and people, very people-driven coach. He found the team that's driven by emotion. The club was driven by emotion. It's built on emotion. He connected with that club. He found a club of his life, most like Wenger found a club of his life with Arsenal. I don't believe at this moment in time the reason, well, I believe in the moment in time the reason my club is struggling a little bit is he lost some of that emotion. He's achieved some of his goals and obviously things happen in his private life. Well, I think he's lost his way a little bit and the injuries, etc. I've compounded that and he's in a little bit of trouble. He's making mistakes. Managers make mistakes. Everyone thinks that next door neighbours grass is greener than their own. Their own. It's not the truth. I watched Pep on Sunday not pick Carl Walker against a transition team, Manchester United, and watching Cancelo getting that run by Luke Shaw. Pep's on 20 million a year. He still made that mistake. I hope he doesn't make it against Spurs because they've got a couple of sharp blokes up front. So pick your faster defender in the right-hand channel and don't get done. People make mistakes. you gotta, you got to back your horse. I think Klopp is brilliant. I wanted him before he went to Liverpool. And I really liked him. I thought he was perfect. But I do think, I'm not saying he's done, but he need, if he does come out of Liverpool at some point, he needs a break before he comes back. And whatever happens, Elliot, he's not in the manager. If Klopp came in, what would he want? He'd want those 10 players to go out. And he wants some cash to buy people. The squad he won those trophies with, where he literally won the World Club, European Cup, and the league. He had all of them in his back pocket. The squad he started with four or five years later was not the squad he ended up with. So whatever we do is all in investment. It's all in what the club direction is. It's not so much in people at this moment in time. It's in cash, investment, how we create cash, how we support the people. 
So if you said to me, if Klopp comes and then the club decide we're going to back him, but they're not prepared to back an inexperienced guy, slightly different question. I'd say, well, you know what, I want Klopp. Because I want the club to be, you know, be invested in. You know, so I think they are invested in Arteta. I think they're massively invested in him. I think they're over-invested in him. They need to invest in him where it really, really counts. So I think the whole question is more of a club issue in our direction rather than just changing the guy in the in the chair. Mm, fair enough. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know that I can agree, but I also don't. I don't want to say that I feel super strongly about this. Um, and you can say, how can you not feel super strongly about who should be our manager? Fair enough. <laughs> I don't have a good answer for that. Um, but what I mean is that right now I'm presently pretty happy with Arteta's doing, with, with what Arteta's doing. But it's not been a linear path to, to improvement. And it's not guaranteed that he has it sort of figured out. And he has no track record of success. And we are still taking a leap of faith. And that's a beautiful thing. And I'm glad we're taking it. And for the most part, there are very few circumstances where I would change. But I think, look, Dortmund fans felt Klopp was done. Look what happened at Dortmund when he was done there. It was a collapse, essentially. Now, I don't want to speak out of school because I, I don't know it Obviously, as well as I know what's going on with Arsenal, and you might say, "Well, no, you do, mate. You don't. You don't know either." Um, but um, I, I would, I would say that what's happening at, at Liverpool is the effect of a team that's had to run a lot without a lot of breaks, using their best players a lot, not a lot of rotation, and it's come home to roost, and they lose all their defenders, and so, and they're not pressing, and it all falls apart. I don't think it means that. Klopp can't just go repeat this somewhere else. And I, I think the difference between Klopp and Pep is I've seen, I've only ever seen Pep thrive with squads that are good enough to be the best in world football. I have now seen Klopp thrive in two places with a lot of talent, don't get me wrong, but with squads that I would not have regarded as the best in world football. Um, so hey, I, I think I, you're, I think your point was beautifully made. And I, and I do, you know, I can't say that it's not about right or wrong. It's about a view, isn't it? It's about a view on a situation. But I will say, no matter what happens, if Klopp comes in, we're not expecting to do that with this squad army. Whatever happens, we're not expecting him to do what he did at Liverpool and did that. And the home. one thing I'd quibble with with your setup, um, Elliot, is the guaranteed bit. I, it wouldn't be guaranteed. Uh, Klopp without the team where it needs to be. I mean, they get t- torn asunder. He doesn't really have a plan B, so we we might be dealing, we might be enjoying getting reamed for a few seasons before we find out if Klopp can do it a third time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I want him to get his game on because Spurs are going to get in the Champions League for God's sake. Yeah, he needs to get his game on real quick because we do not need them separating their revenues from us when their stadiums now full up and they can do all sorts of events in there. We do not need that. That's going to put us in the shade for quite a while. So, you know, wake up, Klopp. Come on, sort these lot out. It's really important that we don't let them get in there. Mm. Well, I mean, it, it, look, we it's it's a silly conversation in the sense that it's not happening, so we don't have to worry about it. Um, I do think managers just change around. They do. Even if Arteta thrives, I've said this many times, he's probably only at Arsenal another three or four seasons, right? Anyway. Mm. So the idea that we have to commit to someone because they're our long-term future I think is a little bit of old school thinking, kind of like the Wenger era of like, oh, well, this is our next 20 years is committed to this guy. Now, I'm not saying that can't be the case, but I'm saying it's almost certainly not the case. So I, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm fine sticking with Arteta, of course, but I think when you're offered a person with a proven track record of taking teams to the absolute pinnacle of the game, it is extremely hard to turn that down. Um, So I don't know. I guess we'll see. Uh, Let's take a few more, because why not? We're only at 80 minutes here. Um, So, well, so Paul, let me start with you. I think it's sort of your turn, technically. Sven Hammers at uh, on the Discord uh, asks, with the referees and VAR getting more and more attention the last couple of weeks, what would you do to fix, in quotes, this ongoing issue? I think this is important, right? Because like, I don't think the referees want to suck and I don't think the league wants VAR to suck, but they seem <laughs> insistent on doing it the worst way possible. How would you fix it? Uh, look, you've much better. I'd prefer to hear your thoughts on this, Elliot, because you, you, you he think said about never. this. He said no one. In, Amer- <laughs> in, in American terms all of this you know i'm like it it'd kill me to go back to no var i I just wish they'd used var for offside that's what i think um i'll live with the rest because the rest is such a mess um but they like if you have it for for offside then it's the thin end of the wedge and it'll start getting used for all sorts of things um because how can you just fix one wrong and ignore the others but for me, just getting off sides right, done quickly. None of that fucking getting out the the measuring, the the uh, dotted line looks ridiculous on screen. Um, like a proper system for checking off sides would be fine and great for me. Uh, but I prefer to hear your cultured view on the whole VAR thing because I just think it's a mess. You either get rid of it. Um, or you wait quite a few years before we work out how to get it right. I'm, I mean, I think I think eventually we'll get it better and quick. But this is, it's a subjective, it shouldn't be, but it is and always will be a subjective. I mean, it's a kind of a contact sport. Well, is that a foul or not? Well, mm. it depends, right? Oh, it's kind of a handball, depending on where, blah, blah. It's always interpretation, so... Yeah, I mean, look, I I think, unfortunately, what the league has done is they've taken an Americanized version of instant replay, which is what we call it here, and brought it into the Premier League. And I think that is, more than anything else, their big problem. Because, ultimately, American sports, especially a sport like the NFL, where replay is used most broadly, has real history of and reliance on very um, officious, pedantic, accurately determined rules. Like, think about This is a league that takes a chain gang out onto the pitch, stretches out chains that are measured to exactly 10 yards, and puts them down to see if the ball has crossed that distance. That's a thing that was done long before replay. It is a sport that is designed to be pedantic. The rules, the laws of the game in football, in my view, were always about subjectivity, just creating a fair environment in which to contest the game. The offside rule was designed to stop goal hanging and you know all kinds of dumb stuff and, and make the game more viewable and more enjoyable, but it, it was never meant to be um, about the spot-on measured accuracy. Fouls, again, to your point, are absolutely subjective. There will never be a way to have a fully objective determination of handball or fouls as long as judgment is involved. So in my view, the best way to use VAR is simply to have the referee whose judgment is in control of the game run to a screen 
and look at a view that's a better view than he had on the pitch and then let that same judgment that he's been using to govern the game govern his decision. If he looks at it and in his judgment deems that it is still a foul or not a foul or still a penalty or not a penalty, then at least you have consistency vis-a-vis the way he's been officiating the game. You also give him the opportunity if he says, you know, screw these guys the first time, got to get it right here. He can do that. But And then you say, well, how will he know when to run to the screen? You still have a VAR guy in the boot that says there is an issue here to review, right? Just the basic threshold of there may be an issue to review. At the next stoppage, he runs over, he looks. He gets one or two better views than he had on the pitch, and he uses the judgment he's already using. For offside, he looks at it. If he can't, with his naked eye, determine whether it's offside or not, then it probably isn't because the law was never supposed to be millimeter determinants. It was supposed to just be not to gain a, quote, unfair advantage. Well, if I can't freaking tell with my naked eye if you're leaning beyond the guy, you have not gained an unfair advantage. If anything, you're sort of punishing clever leaning, clever runs. So, Clive, unless you feel strongly about this, it seems to me football is designed to have one man or woman have their judgment enforce the laws of the game. So have that one man or that one woman still enforce the laws of the game as they always have, but give them the ability to access some video evidence that may give them a better look because sometimes the game is too fast now. Sometimes you're obstructed. Sometimes as the referee, you have to make a judgment on something you frankly didn't really see. So the video can let you see it. Just use your judgment based on that. That seems so easy and it won't, solve every debate but what it will eliminate which is what it was supposed to eliminate is the clearly obviously wrong decisions that everyone in a stadium can look at their phone and know it's wrong but the ref can't change it and ironically even with VAR we wound up with that this weekend so Clive as a final thought on VAR I mean is that is that a sensible enough way to do it it's still about judgment just give them a better view yeah, or her, and, or her. That's why I did say that. To be fair, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did. Um, yeah, in some you are right. And what Val's done is, is uncovered the game. It's uncovered how we feel about the game, and it's, it's we've we've implemented something that's actually going to affect everything about the game. And now we're going to change the game to meet the fact we've implemented technology on top of it. And that's what's going to happen. Now, reading today, they're going to have the referees mic'd up and. And that could, that could happen. That's going to change how players talk to referees. It's going to change the whole soul and culture of the game because we implemented something on top of the game which you hadn't thought through without changing the laws to to match what we're bringing in. So we're in a bit of a, we're in a bit of trouble here because once you go forward with technology, you can't go back. You know, that's just not going to happen. And as soon as we get a bad decision, we're going to say, "Crack, we miss bar." So let's not pretend that we don't agree with it when it works for us. We just disagree when it when it doesn't, and we just messed up big time. Really, we haven't we haven't drip fed it in. I believe we should have used the challenge system initially and see the benefits of it, and then define you know define how you're going to do it from there on onwards. And I just don't think you can win anymore because now we've got a situation where religious hair people we are aiming for perfection in an imperfect game where the banks of ball could change everything. And your perception, whether somebody is too close or somebody was leading his army to stop somebody go past. Even though I'm convinced by that penalty, somebody else who's a professional referee wasn't. And that's going to continue to happen. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what do we want from the game? I think we have to dial back on VAR slightly, reduce the criteria by which it's use, and have a look at the laws, and have a look at the referees, have a look at relationship with referees and players and fans, bring the referees much more into the game almost treat them as like players per se 
let them talk, humanize them, Tim's mentioned that word before, humanize them, bring them right in, into the game, part of the product, part of the output. Yes, I made a mistake. That should be okay. Granite Shaka made a mistake at the weekend. It's okay. Oh, it's not, you can't keep doing it, <clears throat> but it's okay. Bring them right in. They're over there to be shot at. The technology's over there to be shot at. They can't win like this. We're too divided. This is one game, and I think we've got to bring people in a little bit more, and we've got to, we've got to slow this down. You know, we've got to slow this down. At the moment now, what we're doing, we're trying to find solutions, and they're coming from everywhere. We need to calm down and slow this down and implement it because the very fabric of the game is at risk. Mm. I sent out an email about the goal. I think it was the goal of the last week, and the Bamiyan goal, I think it was a highlight of the season. It's a shame because I couldn't really celebrate it. Someone sent me a tweet back. It was genius. I can't remember his name. I apologize. He said, I don't celebrate a goal now till I get a confirmation on email. And I thought <laughs> he was making a joke, but I thought it was so funny. Mm. That's where we're at. We can't even cheer the high moments. Do you know what I mean? And that, and that can't be right. That can't be why anybody listening to this loves this game. Because all we want is to enjoy the high moments with a little bit of freedom, you know? And um, so, yeah, we're in a bit of a mess here. I'm not sure what direction it's going to go, but I thought your premise and your summary was uh, very well said. Oh, thanks. All right, well, let's wrap up with one more question. And, you know, I apologize, everyone who sent them in for us going 52 minutes before getting to them. Uh, Paul, well, actually, Clive, I'll start with you um, for this one because it started with Paul for the last one. Ali Syed at Ali underscore Shabir 87 on Twitter asks, assuming Arteta is the guy, how many essential signings and in what positions? So you don't have to pick the players. Just how many essential signings and what positions do you think we need to compete for top four next season? Okay. So I can't. Funny enough, I did think about this one before the podcast. So I actually wrote it down. Oh, well, <laughs> right. so, there you go. <laughs> which is unlike it's me. It's called all serendipity. Comes back, <laughs> all comes from the back of my head. Right. So I think we need a backup left back. Right? Quite obvious. For me, it needs to be quite an attacking left back. There was a player called Junior Furpo at Barcelona that used to play for Real Betis that I heard we were looking at in January. Didn't quite get there. He's had a bit of a rough time at Barcelona, but he's brilliant at Betis. Somebody like that, very attacking, so he can replace Tierney in that attacking role. You know, so we've got a true attacking option so we don't lose something there. Mm. Um, a right back. And now people are talking about Lamptey. Again, he's transformational. He's got his hamstring ripped off his bone at the moment, so he's not going to play for the rest of the season. But he's a transformational right back. So when he plays, you can't miss him. My worry is his size. Um, there's a young guy at um, RB Leipzig called Mukulele. I, I love him. A bit more like Callum Chambers, but faster, more aggressive. Used to play on the right wing. Really like that player. Again, somebody that can play on the interior as a third man in the 2 3 5, or he can play on the outside as, as five channels. But I like the fact that we have a stronger side on that that right-hand channel, a bit more of an underlapping side. So I like that. Centre midfield, definitely somebody behind the ball in that midfield four, given we're going to lose Sobias and El Nenny, I presume. You know, we're too sure with this club. So if we're going to lose one of them and promote Aziz, we need somebody that can play with both Shaka, who's going nowhere, by the way, and Party. And that player for me is Basuma, because I think he can do... He can play with either. He's a bit, he can play, again, he can play that left-hand channel, he can play the right-hand channel, and he's a true six. He's a true man there, and he, and he protects, he, he sprints into challenges, he can drive out and pass. I really like him as a player. And then the final position for me, given we're going to lose Lacazette and probably Eddie, promote 
somebody, I'm not sure if we're going to promote Balogun, but I do think we need a centre-forward player. Somebody slightly different to um, Aubameyang. Somebody can play with, somebody a bit more physical, and there's two, three players I'm going to give you a name of, right? So, Alexander Isak, um, Real Sociedad, tall, leggy, really quick, carries it. Bit better, a bit more dynamic than Edward, I'm afraid. Edward probably going to end up going to Leicester. Um, it's, I was talking to my mate Tom the other day, and he mentioned a great name, and I'm not sure where he is in his rehabilitation cycle, but um, is it Luka Jovic at Real Madrid? Mm-hmm. Again, a central pivot player, strong finisher in the box, good on low blocks, really good in the air, really strong, peels off, had a terrible time at Madrid. I think he went back to Leverkusen and started to score. I'm not sure where he is right now, but um, yeah, that's a player that could be uh, a project. A little sneaky one for you that I think got some potential. Um, you like sneaky. <laughs> uh, just one, I've not even I just thought of it a couple of days ago. He's a kid at Watford, it's Meli Sarr. Now, he's a bit of a winger, but I do think potentially he could be a centre-forward one day. He's unbelievably quick. We should have got him when he played us in the Europa League for Rennes. He ended up going to Watford for quite a heavy price. They went down. He stayed with them. He's still playing well. Super fast. Liverpool like him. Man United like him. I think he's got potential to be a forward one day. And he's strong. He's tall. And I think he could be really something. He's done the hard yards. And... So play like that, and I think with the number of sales we've got to make, but the, a lot of these players, what I call first eleven players, or there thereabouts. I think we need to supplement the team. People are going to talk about potential of the wide man, but we've got players that we've done the work with, Martinelli and Saka and and Pepe. You've got to make sure that these guys um, play. You know what I mean? So um, and maybe there's probably one more. If we do lose Odegaard and we do lose um, Odegaard, I do think we need number ten potentially. You know, so um, again, the player that I like is Bendia. So um, that would be my that would be my five. You know, like attacking mid, Bendia, a centre forward, a centre mid behind the ball, first eleven right back, and a backup left back. Mm. I, I mean, how could I argue with that? Because <laughs> what the hell do I know? Um, Paul, do you, do you have any thoughts on? I mean, look, he smashed. Uh, Odegaard it. What, what can, can put a word. Yeah, Odegaard can put a word in for us with uh, Isaac. Over at Real Sociedad, mm-hmm. um, I de- we I don't think a ten would be optional. It would be absolutely mandatory. We definitely need a ten uh, if we're not keeping Odegaard. I guess we'll get a few more months looking at him. But maybe Real Madrid will uh, do a, a, a follow-on loan for another year there. Um, I don't think they'll find it easy to sh- shift Zidane. Uh, he's kind of an institution there, so. Could be a reasonable chance we hang on to him. Um, the rest of it, uh, I agree with. Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, uh, I enjoy Clive's exposition. I would have guessed different spots, I must say. Uh, but a, definitely a central mid midfielder, but more of an eight. A driving midfielder. I mean, party can, can do some of that. But I just think we have the kind of... While I love Basuma, I think we can't, we're we going to have Chaka and we're going to have Party. I don't think that's our area of greatest need, uh, much as I would enjoy seeing somebody like Basuma in our midfield. So I think we need more of a, a driving midfielder, kind of an 8 with a bit of an 8-10 to him, but definitely an 8. Um, and yeah, the rest was all good. <laughs> you got the approval there at the end, Clive. You, you got there. Uh, well, right. well, like you can't argue with Clive because, like, you know, I just, I just would have guessed 
other places guessed wrong, but it would have guessed yeah, good. I will, I will tell you, I have good. argued with Clive, and, and I don't recommend it. How'd it go? <laughs> no, not great. <laughs> I'm a quiet dude. Leave me alone, you lot. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, was that it? Or her. <laughs> Everybody's or her. Okay. Look, just the 96 minutes today, so I apologize for that. Um, we will try to put out uh, a lot more than that coming up. Look, some some quick Twitters. things. First of all, we will have a um, we'll have Patreon content tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, so please sign up for that. Please. We would love to have you there, but also don't. If you don't want to, if you can't, don't. We love having you here. I hope that clarified that. Uh, next, we will have a live stream, two-hour pre-match live stream video. My internet is fixed. We're going full tilt uh, starting at 6 p.m. UK, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern on Thursday before the match. We're going to have lots of guests, lots of fun stuff. Please join us for that on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. Lastly, and it probably should have been firstly, uh, on behalf of everyone at the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast, Scott, Tim, Clive, Paul, and uh, myself, most importantly, and and with the most heartfelt and sincere um sense of, of sorrow and loss possible. I want to send my condolences to Andrew at Arsblog um, for what he is going through. A person who, you know, is the biggest inspiration in my life for the stuff that we do here would not exist without him. And when you have a hero and you meet them, there's almost that little part of you that's like hoping they'll be a jerk so that someone can't be perfect. And it turns out he is even greater and nicer uh, and more enjoyable in person than even through the medium of podcast and, and written work and whatnot. So uh, I just adore Andrew. I, I am so sorry for what you are going through, Andrew, if you have made it this far into our podcast. And um, I, I am sorry for your loss. I, I send mm-hmm. thoughts for all yeah. of us because it is it is a really hard thing that you were going through. And having read Andrew's blog post today, and I recommend it, go to Arsblog, read it. Just an absolutely sensational, touching tribute to what sounds like a titan of a man and his father. And... Uh, Please may he rest in peace and may you find some yourself, Andrew. So um, that will do it. And I hope everybody else is hanging in there, is healthy, is okay, is getting through it okay. These have been hard times and we we have tried our best to to bring levity, to bring uh, all kinds of interesting and, and hopefully enjoyable things through those moments. But it's important to remind ourselves that we're still going through it. So uh, I hope you're doing well wherever you are. Anything to add, guys? Yeah, well, I, I sent Andrew a note this morning. What, what can you say, right? He's just a, um, he's a pillar of our Arsenal community. And uh, I just always praise him for his consistency and quality and, and as an individual. And we all know him. And um, all I will say is that there's a lots of people reaching out to him in the Arsenal family. And, you know, there's some really, there's some really good people in the Arsenal world. And he does appreciate it. I know that for sure. And, um, mate, so I just hope you're going to be okay, and I wish you all the best. Yeah, yeah, well said. Can right. I say yeah, one please, quick thing? Please do, yeah. I lost my dad about 10 years ago. Sorry for uh, loss. Thank you. Um, and he's always with me. I don't mean in the spiritual floaty around me sense, though that may be true too. He's just like a son and his dad, if you're close, and I know Andrew was. He's always with you. He, what he thought, what he said... It's just part of you. Um, so anyway, I hope I hope that's what Andrew experiences too when things settle down. Mm, well said. All right. Well, I will uh, leave it there. And I hope wherever you are, you're doing okay. So from us to you, all the best. We love you. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. We'll be out